Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. 
connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Gabriel, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Thank you. Yeah. So, you know, I came across you by way of uh, Sean over at 99U. And of course, you know, I know of the work that you do. Uh, and I thought, you know, anybody who has the audacity to say, I am building something that is going to challenge the world's biggest search behemoth, Google, uh, is somebody that I had to talk to. So on that note, can you tell us uh, a bit about yourself, your journey, your story, and how that has led you to what you're up to in the world today? Sure. So, um, I really started this entrepreneurial journey right out of college, went to MIT, um, didn't really go into college thinking I'm going to do this, but I, I kind of came out thinking I didn't want to do physics, which is what my major was, um, and thought I would jump into to startups. It was the year 2000. Um, and I really haven't been doing it since. Um, I started, you know, a few companies that didn't really work very well. And then one that was decently successful, um, which I sold in 2006. Um, and then I was all in Boston and then I moved to Philly where I live now, where I actually met Sean. Um, and then about a year later, I, I started tinkering with all sorts of projects and that I was mainly interested in. And then they kind of turned into, I didn't set out to do a search engine, but it, it, they, they turned into what I thought could be a better search engine. And then spent another like nine months working on that. And then launched it at the end of 2008, and then really have been doing that for the last, you know, six years, mm-hmm. uh, just building the search engine up. Um, and the only other piece of that entrepreneurial journey, really, that I would mention initially would be in 2009, I started angel investing, mm-hmm. and I invested about a dozen companies and advised a bunch more. And so, kind of, I, I've seen the at least in the software world, kind of the entrepreneurial stuff from all sides. Hmm. Let me ask you this. Uh, you know, one of the things I'm always really intrigued about is sort of the journey before the journey. Uh, you know, what was your childhood like? You know, what kinds of influences do you think led you to one end up at MIT and two end up down this entrepreneurial path? You know, so I I had a relatively normal childhood. Um, I grew up in Atlanta. Um, even though I was born in DC and spent a couple of years in the Philippines, but I moved to outside Atlanta, suburban Atlanta when I was five and, and basically stayed there until going to MIT. Um, my dad is a doctor, had his own practice for a while. So that is kind of entrepreneurial. My mom, um, 
was an artist who then had a clothing company. So that's also entrepreneurial. Um, and I'm sure those kind of osmosis led <laughs> influenced me, although it wasn't like, like something that was a big focus in my family. Like you should be an entrepreneur or anything. In fact, the opposite. My, I think my parents were not psyched about the idea of me doing entrepreneurial endeavors, especially when I said I was going to, to leave school without graduating, <laughs> which I, which I did, I did graduate. Um, so I don't know. Um, in high school I did a, um, you know, I made money as a computer consultant mm-hmm. had my own little consulting business. Um, I ran my own BBS. Now, if you guys remember those days before the web, <laughs> um, you would basically have a modem and people could dial up to your computers, like kind of join a message board kind of thing. Um, so I, I kind of dabbled in that stuff. I had an electronic magazine, like an Ezion, they used to call them <laughs> in uh, college. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were a bunch of like random projects that, that kind of, I guess you could call maybe precursor to more serious entrepreneurial work. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's interesting. I really love that you brought up the fact that your parents weren't exactly thrilled about this idea of, of you becoming an entrepreneur. And I think that this level of resistance from our external world is something that all of us face to some degree. It, it may come from parents. It may come from peers. It, it may come from something internally inside of us. I'm wondering how you overcome that resistance uh, and still end up, you know, going where you do and, and, and still end up trying what might not work. So I, you know, I, I was kind of told I was an aloof kid <laughs> and, you know, there's, I, I obviously care to some degree what people think about me, but, um, there's a large degree that I just don't. Um, and as much as I love my parents and take their advice, I, I didn't particularly care that they didn't particularly like what I was going to do. <laughs> um, so I don't know. There's there's been that streak in me. I don't know if it's just genetic or personality formed early on, but um, I've often just been kind of doing my own thing. Mm-hmm. You think that that's something that people can cultivate, or do you think that's just something that we're born with? I definitely think people can cultivate it because I I think a lot of it, it, it you might be more inclined to it than other people. But like, that's like most things, like you have natural talent for some things, but if you work at it, you can develop that skill. Uh Um, I think the same is true here. Um, It's more, you know, it's not nonconformity for the sake of nonconformity, but it's um, being less concerned what the world is going to think of you and doing more kind of what you just want to do for the sake of doing it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not that I didn't feel some drive to, to... to do other things. The hardest thing is, is money, right? When you're first graduating and especially from, I don't know if it's like this for everywhere, but especially at MIT, um, you know, everyone generally is graduating to to pretty lucrative jobs and things like that. Um, and the idea that, you know, you're just going to graduate and take no, make no money. In fact, spend all your life savings instantly on a startup, (laughs) um, you know, is not the, and that's kind of where my parents probably were. It's not necessarily the most prudent decision from the outside. Um, but I did it anyway. Mm-hmm. 
So you, you brought up this idea of natural talents and, and sort of cultivating um, this capacity for operating in the world this way. I guess, you know, for me, one of the things that I keep coming across as I, I talk to people on this show, as I, I keep coming across people in my life, is that I find that too often these natural talents get buried and just kind of silenced by what we think we're supposed to do and how we think think we're supposed to behave in the world kind of like all those people who walk out of a place like MIT having gone to Berkeley I can relate with you know high salaries high profile jobs and there's two questions that I have for you around this when it comes to people that you've worked with how have you brought those natural talents out of them and how in adult life, when we've been lulled into submission and conformity, we do we get back in touch with all of that? You know, I haven't, you know, spent a lot of time trying to convince people, you know, to kind of break out of conformity. So I don't know if I have the best experience there, but I do have a few data points. So, you know, you mentioned you've um, met Justin, my co-author on this book I recently wrote a bunch of times. And mm-hmm. You know, he he wrote a post actually about himself having an epiphany at some point in college where, you know, he just woke up one day and realized, you know, he can do whatever he wants to do. <laughs> and I think that's kind of the starting point, right? It's like um, realizing that what is the worst case scenario if I go try to do things and in some parts of the world, maybe the worst case scenario is pretty bad and you shouldn't do it then, you know, or if you have obligations, you know, the risk may not be right. But when you're, you know, a 21 year old kid or 20 year old kid in America from a decently middle-class family, your risks, especially having gone to a good school, right? Like you in Berkeley or me and MIT, Mm -hmm. your risk is pretty low of anything seriously bad happening to you. I mean, you can fall back, on get a job pretty easily, which I ended up doing after a year after I went broke. I then worked for a year at another company to get up some savings again. Um, and so, like, I think once you perceive the safety net is there, like, that gives some people some cushion to then go free. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure what the moment is for any particular person, but I think that's a large part of it, like a realization, like, what is the worst that's going to happen to you? Mm-hmm. Okay, so you know you just talked about the what the worst that's going to happen to you is, and you mentioned going broke, uh, and pretty consistently, I find that almost every single person on the show has sort of a dark moment, one which really kind of takes them down, uh, and yet you've come out of the other side of it to do some pretty significant things. So, a couple of questions come from that. One is is navigating moments like that in our lives and and how we deal with them, how you dealt with it, uh, and kind of how you go past that without it letting it impact you and, and kind of what was the impact on you from going broke when you tried to do this thing? Yeah, I definitely had a dark moment and it, it was at that moment, but it really wasn't because I went broke. <laughs> it was really because my first startup failed mm-hmm. and I had, you know, been one of these people, you might have been one of them too, who just hadn't really failed at anything you know, kind of succeeded in the world that was given to me to date, you know, in school, basically just in school. Um, but you know, in extracurriculars, things like that. And then I felt that I had applied 
you know, what I thought was decent, you know, certainly effort and also kind of intellect to my first startup. And I gave it my all by far and it totally didn't work. And I was like pretty, you know, shook by that failure, I would say. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it took me a while to get over it. But then I, I did realize that, you know, after analyzing and overanalyzing the situation, that, you know, there were a lot of things out of my control. I did the best I could. You can only control what's in your control. Mm-hmm. And that's all you can really do. Um, and, you know, arguably, I made a bunch of other mistakes that I wouldn't make in the future, but I, I didn't know them. You know, only in hindsight did I know they were really mistakes, right? Yeah. And so um, I came to peace with the idea that you could try hard and still fail. And then once I kind of came to peace with that, then everything kind of clicked for me a bit more. And I, I failed many other times, but it, they didn't have that dark moment again. Hmm. So do you think there's something that differentiates the person who can fail once the way you did and have it be such this dark thing? And yet you just mentioned that you failed many other times that it wasn't such a dark thing every other time. Versus the person who might fail in that one time and never try again. Yeah, I I have this concept, which I it, it's almost like the one advice I give people when I get an entrepreneur is to treat it if you're really serious about it to treat it as a career path. And if it's a career path, you know you're going to fail along at some points. There's going to be low points. You're going to need to if you have a long term view, you have time to to build skills. You know. And the most salient point about treating it as a career path is you don't have the one and done mentality. You know, like you're just saying, if you do once and you fail, you're out. And the real pernicious problem with that in startups or entrepreneurship in general is, you know, things often fail. Um, so if you have the one and done mentality and let's, let's give you good credit, say it's a 50, 50 when it's probably even worse or mm-hmm. first time entrepreneurs, you know, 50, 50, you're going to fail and then you're done forever you know, after that two years, that's just kind of sad because if that was a career for you or just strike out on your own, you know, that, that could be a 40, 50 year career. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of the realization for me is that, you know, I thought I, I came through and said, I, I really want this to be my career. I, you know, I did fail, but I really liked the idea of making my unique impact in the world. That's kind of the driving force for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I'm going to do that, then, you know, I have to suck it up. That's, this is just part of that job. You know, it's, it's interesting you say that, uh, you know, cause this was really one of our first sort of big years of success. And then of course, you know, followed by that were some of the biggest challenges that we've ever had. Uh, it went from a hundred miles an hour to suddenly, wait a minute, everything is not as perfect as we thought it was. And, I, you know, I got a text from my mentor advisor and, you know, one of my business partners, he said, you have to remember that you're just at the beginning of the arc of your body of work. And I thought after five years, we're just at the beginning. And <laughs> when I listen to you say it in terms of a career path, it makes sense on the same level. Uh, yeah, I think that's exactly the right and same advice. Exactly. To having a long-term view for things. And people also say another phrase that people use is being long-term greedy instead mm-hmm. of short-term greedy. Hmm. Um, and that's a really succinct way to put it is like, you know, if you're long-term greedy, you want 
success in the end, but you know, not at the expense of the short term relationships and things like that, because, you know, in the long term, all those things matter and will build and, and you can't be too concerned about blips and trying to optimize everything in the short term. Mm. So let's talk about this in a bit more depth there, there. There's two things that actually come up for me. One is, are there things that we can do in our daily lives to develop a capacity for failure and this ability to get back up when things don't work out? I mean, how have you developed a capacity for it without going through so many failures? Like, I mean, do you think that's just built into you or are the things that we can do to bring this into our lives? I don't think it was built. This part was built in. I mean, cause I think, you know, that first failure hitting so hard, at least, um, it didn't feel built in. <laughs> um, you know, I, I mentioned this earlier, but I think, you know, analyzing, doing postmortems on situations, thinking about what was in your control, what was out, what might have happened, you know, doing overanalyzing can be dangerous, but, you know, there is a healthy amount of analyzing. Um, and, and I do that a lot, thinking through scenarios. And uh, um, that's helped me personally. I don't, I don't know in general, like, you know, people have all different personalities and probably different things will help different people. Um, but for me in particular, that's helped. Hmm. You know, here's, here's a question that I, I have just out of personal curiosity. What would you say were the biggest lessons that came from your earlier failures? Um, there were, so that one, you know, something's been out of control was a big one. Um, there were a lot of tactical lessons um, in terms of getting skills for entrepreneurship, like I hired the wrong people. Um, my idea was not fleshed out very well. You know, it, it ultimately, that was probably the biggest mistake. It was the wrong idea, and I spent little time validating it. Um, a couple that I took me much longer to learn, <laughs> but that was on the path to learning was, you know, you mentioned you have a, a mentor. You know, I didn't really draw on mentorship throughout my 20s. Um, even though I had some good people available. Um, and then another one was, you know, I didn't think that big, like I, I struck out on my own path and, and did well, but, and, and wanted to make a unique impact, but I, I didn't think that I could make a big impact. And kind of the lesson there was it's often just as hard to make a small impact than it is a big impact. Mm -hmm. Um, and so you might as well just go big, mm -hmm. uh, but that took me a long time to learn. All right. Well, I think that makes a perfect setup to, you know, what I want to spend the rest of our time talking about. And we'll get into traction uh, as a part of this process. But you just mentioned the idea of think about a big impact. And I mean, to say, you know what, I want to take on the biggest behemoth of a search engine in the world, Google. And basically, I mean, you've been labeled their smallest and fiercest competitor. That's a big impact. And I'm really curious about what it is inside of you that makes you say, you know what, I think we can do better than what arguably has been the best thing ever created and billions of people use. And I think that I can take it on. I think there's something inside of you that I'm very curious about what it is that makes somebody like this because it's something that I'm just fascinated by. 
Yeah, I mean, I wish I could say I had this idea for a big vision and then just pursued it initially, but that is really not what happened. I mean, I really, I really learned about the idea of going after something big kind of midway through when I really decided to go big with it. Um, but initially, I, you know, I agreed with you that you know Google was was kind of awesome but i at the same time in 2007 when i started working on this i was i was getting dissatisfied with my google results um personally in particular i um you know was finding a lot of spam just sites with ads and little content in it and i was finding myself going to a bunch of these community driven sites like you know wikipedia and yelp was coming on board and you know, IMDB, where I would just wanted answers and I didn't feel like I should have to click on links to get them, you know? Mm -hmm. um, they should just come right at the top of the, the search results. And so I really set out initially just to kind of augment my Google experience and develop tools that would help it become better. Mm -hmm. And then after building a few of these, um, I realized, you know, if you put these together, they might make a somewhat compelling, just independent search experience. Um, and that could be independently interesting. And my thesis was, you know, the web browser market might be a good analogy for the search market. So the web browser market, you know, was very competitive in the early stages and IE kind of dominated. And then it sat there dominant for a while because, you know, the actual technology to do web browsers had been played out. Like, you know, each web browser would render the web page the same. But then Firefox came on board and then Safari and Chrome started gaining share. And they honestly do the same job, but people prefer them for different reasons, you know, for speed or perform or um, design or add-ons. And I thought in search engines, you know, you, you could have the same thing. You know, the, the actual link results were kind of reaching diminishing returns, but there was an ability to differentiate on other areas, you know, that that you know a search engine like Google has to choose a certain direction, but you could choose another direction in privacy or design um, or instant answers or clutter and thought, you know, I think if you put these things together, I could make a search experience that would be more compelling for me personally and I'll launch it and see if other people are interested. So that was kind of the starting point. It more came out of a personal interest than a, like, I want to take on this big or even make a business out of it. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's interesting because I think that you and I have very similar stories in that sense that, you know, when I, I looked at how we started by plugging a microphone into a laptop and today the vision is let's change the way stories in the media are told. Let's focus on the stuff that doesn't bleed, but the stuff that changes hearts and minds for the better. And if you asked me five years ago, I couldn't have told you that. I think you, like me, you know, you know, worked on it personally as my guess and then you woke up one day and you're like, wow, I'm really, I really have something here. I've tapped into something that people want. Mm -hmm. How can I really, you know, what do I really have here and how can I make it as big as possible? I mean, that's kind of what I did. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 
36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Yeah. Well, so that, I think, is what we'll spend the rest of our time talking about. But let me ask you this. Do you think that it is possible... You know, you and I have sort of figured out, okay, this is what we came into the world to do and think big, and this is our big vision. How do people find that uh, within their own work, What, regardless of whatever it is? Because, you know, you have to remember that the wide variety of people to this who listen to this include artists, you know, people who are, uh, you know, creating movements. I mean, some are, are building startups. I mean, it's it's across the gamut, but... Yet that sort of fundamental thing that drives people to keep showing up day after day, how do you find that? I mean, is it a process of trial and error like the one you and I have been through? Or is that something that you can figure out when you start? It's an interesting question because it took me a, a long time to, to find as well. Um, 
when I was starting after my first company, when I started my second and then before DuckDuckGo, I went through a period of starting many projects all at once. So these search projects were, were part of it, but I also started some other kind of random unrelated things. Um, and I did the same thing before the last company. And that process was really eye-opening for me. Like I thought I was interested in some of these things, but then when I got into it, I realized that I wasn't. Um, and only by doing a bunch of them in parallel, like, could I really compare? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that's one process that's worked for me. I, I've been, I, that happens to me a lot, like even with, you know, coding software, I, I, I find it hard to talk about these things in the abstract or blogging even. Right. Uh, I, I find it much easier to develop, to really understand whether I'm interested or even develop an idea um, without getting into it. I got to get into it a little bit. Um, that may totally vary by person. So like my general advice for people who are, who seem like they're more like me is just try a bunch of things. You don't have to do them, you know, full time or forever, but just try a bunch of things and see, and see the differences, how you feel about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have found that often sort of these things that we're, we're curious about will reveal sort of next steps. Like you take the first one and the view changes and you see things that you can't see now. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, that, that that's a much more succinct way to describe <laughs> what I said. So I'm, thank you for that. <laughs> uh, well, you know, the thing is, so here's one other question. And, and this is something that has been that's on exactly my mind. That's exactly why I like blogging, by the way. Because <laughs> blogging... I try to be succinct, but it takes me forever. But then, I, you know, eventually you get there. Well, you know, this is something that's been on my mind lately, and I've been thinking about it a lot as, as I've been having conversations with friends, business partners, and, and everybody else. And, you know, people ask me, you know, the question of why you start is always an easy one. And, and the question of why you stick with it, despite the fact that there are no external rewards or no external accolades. And... My answer has always been that on some level, from the get-go, I believed that something big would come from all of it. And I'm really interested in, in, in you know, what your take is on that. And is that when you start projects and when you start things, is that something that is inherently built into the way you think about the world and view the world? Yeah, this one also took me a long time to realize with self-reflection but then i i wrote this post about this exact thing like maybe a year ago called i think on the cusp of something big mm-hmm. uh, i'm only referencing it because it's exactly what you're saying you know like i basically said that you know my motivation continued motivation for some of these things even in kind of darker periods has been you know yeah i feel like i'm on the cusp of this could really turn into something big um and that idea has really driven me so i i totally buy into what you're saying there. Hmm. Well, let's do this. Let, let's talk specifically about traction and, and the concepts in it. Because, you know, when I, I found out about the book, uh, at first I was kind of like, okay, this is only relevant to people who are building tech startups. But as I dug into the concepts, I thought, you know, this is actually relevant to anybody who's building anything of significance who wants people to pay attention to what they're building. Uh, and, you know, we've been literally dissecting the book. So I'd love for you to walk us through sort of the traction framework uh, and how it could be applied to any creative project. Is that doable? Yeah, yeah absolutely. You're, you're exactly right. It, it is really for, for getting traction with anything. Um, 
And the idea is really based on two premises that we discovered from our own experience and from talking to dozens of you know successful project founders um, and studying other stories. So, so one is that you know when you're taking off, when your project is taking off, generally there's one major channel, we call them traction channels in the book, but marketing channel, customer acquisition channel that is dominating that growth, you know, be it viral or social media or content marketing or, you know, a number of these 19 channels we identify. It's usually one that's really pushing you through. Um, and the second is it's hard to know which one it's going to be, a, you know, before you start. Um, and part of that is, you know, the underutilized channels are often what work best, you know, things your competitors aren't doing. Um, part of that is, you know, you don't have experience with a lot of channels. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, so it's hard for you to know because you don't have experience with them if they're going to work or not. Um, and so the framework, what it's really designed to do is, you know, it's called bullseye because you, what you're really trying to do is aim for that bullseye of that exact channel. That's going to make your, you know, project take off. Um, for this, you know, growth curve mm -hmm. and, you know, the framework is you go through these 19 channels and you, you brainstorm and you figure out, you really try to figure out how you could use them. And, and that step is probably the most important step because it's designed to overcome your, your biases, either because you're, you have a tendency to do stuff you're already familiar with. Or, you know, you have some icky sense that sales isn't for you or certain things like speaking is out of your comfort zone. Um, and so you, you do this brainstorming step and then you rank and prioritize the best ideas. Then you go test them. You literally test them in different channels and you, you try to determine, you know, how many people can I really recruit through this channel? How much is it going to cost me? Are these the right people for my project that I really want? Assuming that you get a, a match, you know, one of these tests is quite promising. Then you go and you double down and you, you follow that rule that only one channel is going to be dominant for you at any time. And you really focus on it and you try to uncover, you know, strategies that you wouldn't be able to do if you weren't focusing on it. Um, and, and that's that's the framework in a nutshell. It's a little abstract, so I'm happy to apply it <laughs> more concretely. Well, being the selfish person I am and the host of the show, uh, I'm going to do this in the framework of a tactical example, and we're going to use our show <laughs> as that example. So, I mean, if you're working with me and we're looking at something like Unmistakable Creative or Unmistakable Media, our company, I mean, how do you take something like a podcast or a show and run it through this framework? Because I think usually I, I love framing things in the context of tactical examples. Yeah. So, you know, it really starts even before the framework with a goal. Uh -huh. And so, you know, we, we call the traction goal in the books. It's called traction. Um, but that really is, you know, a meaningful goal for your project. And what we advise is that is a goal that is related to an inflection point in your company. Like if you for your project. If you achieve this, then what is really going to change external to it? So a lot of times with uh, projects that is it becoming self-sustaining, right? Or, mm -hmm. or it's going to be enough traction where you can get external funding um, or, you know, it's attractive to a bigger company or, you know, you're more um, entrenched in the market. So you're, 
interesting because you're farther along, you have a lot of listeners already. Mm-hmm. So I'd ask you the question is, you know, what is your next big goal? Well, I'd say our next big goal is a, a certain number of downloads per month to lead to much higher sponsor dollars. Uh, and eventually, obviously, potentially to, to get the attention of larger media companies saying, okay, these guys are big, we should be paying attention as a potential acquisition target. But let's let's start with the first one. Cool. So do you have a sense for, you know, how many more you need? Um, let's say, you know, we get anywhere between 10 to 15,000 downloads per episode, but if we wanted to get it consistently to 20 and even bigger than that, I mean, what are the things that we could be doing or how would yeah, we so use attraction? Framework? Not to push back too much, but 20 seems, if you're already at 15, 20 seems like you're basically almost there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's, you know, why not 50, you know, okay. I, I don't know what numbers are in podcasts. If like 50 sure. is like the stratosphere, but okay. like. You know, it's certainly a factor of two, right? Mm-hmm. Um, why not thirty? Okay. Like, are those meaningful differences in terms of you think? The oh, business yeah. would be fundamentally different if you were at thirty versus twenty. Yeah, for sure. I mean, these are the kind of things that you know I think about when determining our goal. So, like, our goal of the search engine was a hundred million searches a month. Our, our last goal was because we would be at break even, and now it's been for the last couple of years. Um, get into 1% of the search market mm-hmm. because we'd be, you know, much more entrenched at that level for, for all sorts of reasons. Um, but these goals have taken a couple of years to achieve, you know? Um, and the reason I'm harking on what the goal is, is because, you know, when you proceed in the next stage of analyzing the channels and what you can do, you only want to focus on things that can move the needle for your goal. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you have a small goal, then, you know, that is easier to achieve with most of the channels. Um, And then a lot of things may be worth your time to get to that goal quicker. Mm -hmm. But if your goal is, you know, to get to, let's just go wide with it, 100,000 downloads, right? (laughs) Um, You know, you want to only concentrate on ideas or channels that may really move you to that goal. Um, And that's going to be a whole different set of ideas than if you're trying to get 5,000 more. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so, okay. So let's, let's take a doubling. (laughs) Um, and then my question would be, is given that you've had success already, it's not starting off. So when you're starting off very, almost any channel can move the needle and you're thinking of, you know, what are kind of the cheapest ways to get my first customers? But with you, you know, like us, we've been through many channels where we've had growth and then it's leveled off and we've had to, you know, find a new channel. So what channels like really drove your growth in the last few years? Well, I'd say iTunes and and this is interesting. I mean, and the reason I asked this question, like I said, was for very selfish reasons. iTunes is like the Bermuda Triangle of information. Uh, you don't know a lot. We kind of have some ideas of how things get ranked. For example, we know reviews drive a lot of things. Uh, and we know that subscriptions drive a lot of things in iTunes and, and that leads to sort of rankings. But beyond that, you know, how do you take the ancillary stuff outside of it and apply the traction framework? Because like it, it, it's it's fitting that we're having this conversation because we literally have spent the whole day having this conversation. <laughs> so with iTunes, I mean, are you? Let me just go into that a little bit. Are you under the belief that the podcast you, you've mainly grown your listener base through like iTunes recommendations or coming up on iTunes lists? Is that what you mean by iTunes? Yeah, that's what I would say. And that has been like 
the majority as opposed to, you know, I would expect you've gotten a lot of uh, word of mouth. Yeah, I would say iTunes and word of mouth. Word of mouth has definitely been a huge one. Okay. Um, And is it the case that iTunes you feel has kind of leveled off for you or at least reached a point of diminishing returns for this kind of bigger goal? Um, I wouldn't say it's reached a point of diminishing returns. What I would say based on, on sort of looking through the concepts in the book is that it's a bit harder to control what we can do within the iTunes ecosystem, if you know what I mean. Yep. Uh, whereas, you know, with word of mouth, when we saw that, we're like, okay, we could do a lot more with this. Um, and that's why I'm really curious because, you know, and for those of you guys listening, you know, part of what the reason I want, I want to do this as an example is I want you to extract what we're talking about and how it might be applied to whatever project you're working on. Right. So the next step I would embark on, and maybe you were doing this this morning would be to, you know, go through each of these channels kind of one by one and say, okay, what, what would be an idea that we could do with this channel to kind of drive, um, you know, users and downloads that might actually move the needle for the goal. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we don't have to literally go through each one, but like I could, you know, off the top of my head, I would guess a few of these would be higher, um, you know, have higher potential ROI than others. Um, and I'm curious what you guys came up with, but like, you know, from studying kind of other people's podcasts and hearing that you said word of mouth has been a main driver, which I would have expected given the nature of the show, uh-huh. I would imagine um, a couple things jump out of me. One is community building as a channel. Um, I'm not sure what the community you have around the podcast now is, mm-hmm. um, but I can imagine you having a vibrant community around it that, you know, draws people in um, and, you know, is something that has a life of its own and could drive downloads. So that's one that sticks out of me. Another would be um, email marketing, which I think is kind of an underutilized channel in general but with someone who has a lot of podcasts you could be driving people to the list and giving content out that's kind of related um and people would be interested in that so you know signing up independently and you know coming back who are like not they're not dialing every podcast but if they were on your email list they might be mm-hmm. um that would be one another one that jumps out at me would be targeting blogs um because you mentioned you've had 400 or something bloggers <laughs> that you've interviewed over the years, you know, mm-hmm. uh, they probably don't know. I'll know what you've been up to. Um, and, you know, might be interested in, in helping you promote the show hmm. um, in some way. And their reach in aggregate is probably ridiculous <laughs> at this point Yeah, uh, in terms of moving the needle for, for getting people to be active listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, Let's see what else we got here. Um, just to go through them. sales, probably not as much. Business development could be interesting uh, in terms of cross-promoting podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, engineers, marketing, probably not. PR, maybe. Um, probably not search engine marketing for you. I can't imagine what people would be searching for for this. you have the same problem like dropbox and that um social and display ads potentially like a reddit kind of thing right Um, 
offline ads, maybe advertising on other podcasts helps. I mean, I've seen NPR doing that recently Uh with, you know, cross promoting their own podcasts. Got to imagine it works. Um, The question is like, do you monetize enough for that to make sense? You know, right. Um, SEO probably similarly not going to work very well. Content marketing definitely could. I mean, you're, you have, deep knowledge about blogging and good ideas like you could be you could be having your own blog with this which you probably do already to some degree i haven't checked um so how's that with regards to your list (laughs) i'd say we're we're i'm looking at a you know a glass window where we've written everything i think we're definitely on the same page uh but you know what i'm curious about is taking all of that and again you know the reason i want to do this this way i mean we've used ourselves and as as an example but testing it now and actually going through this process and, and doing it in a way that is cost effective, especially because, you know, when you look at people who have creative projects, for example, that might be like a book or a piece of art or whatever it is, they're not going to necessarily have funding to test. I mean, even a thousand dollars to them might be a stretch. So how do you do this in a way that is quick, that's effective and you figure out where your time is, is worth spending? Yeah. I mean, I think you can test channels. So let's, Let's suppose you go through all the 19 channels and you brainstorm and then you you come up with a few that you think seem really promising. You're excited about those ideas, right? Then the question is, how do you cheaply test them? Um, how do you craft a test where you can roughly guesstimate from the test whether you're getting some real customers that you want and somewhat validate how much it's going to cost to replicate that? And, and hopefully also say, oh, there's a lot more volume here. Mm-hmm. Um, and for each, you know, business and, and channel, it's a little different, but almost all of them, you can do cheap tests, you know, for, so for example, you know, speaking engagements, you go talk somewhere pretty small, right? Um, it, you know, let's see what other ones we've been actually been talking about. Um, email marketing, you know, you, you send, a message to your list <laughs> and you, you know, you track the clicks on it and see what, see what happens with it and try to tie it to downloads. Um, I think it's important with all these tests to try to tie it to conversions as much as possible. Cause that's ultimately what you're trying to determine. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd be curious if, if you got as far as thinking about tests with some of these tomorrow, <laughs> tomorrow. Okay, yeah. fair enough. Uh, um, yeah. So, where, did you did you have a few that you thought were the most promising? Yeah, I would say. I mean, there's some. You know, we don't want to give it away uh, here on the show because we're working on some stuff. Fair enough. The scenes, Fair but, enough. Uh, you know, a lot of it is around you know community building and, and viral stuff. Believe it or not, because there's a lot of stuff that we've done that lends itself well to that. And of course, the word of mouth piece is definitely a huge part. Yeah, I mean, I think viral is really you know institutionalizing word of mouth. Mm-hmm do it via viral or via the community building um and i i do think both of those would be successful here because you have you probably have people who are passionate about the show who know other people that would benefit from it right yeah exactly that's the key to making those two work right Mm -hmm. and so I, i think there's probably something workable in there interesting 
Well, let's do this. Um, you know, we're getting close to uh, about an hour. I mean, we've been talking for about 45 minutes. You know, I, I want to ask you a question around kind of what you see as the future of search and the future of the web and, and kind of how all this technology that has infiltrated our lives is going to be integrated. So search, I have a much clearer vision of. <laughs> um you know, I've been harking on this answer concept, and I and that's kind of what I believe. When you when you're searching, you're generally looking for an answer. And over the past, you know, six years since I started DuckDuckGo, and part of the initial thesis was there's all these answers out there, and there's tons of sites cropping up that are community driven that are producing great answers in all these niche subjects. You know, so I mentioned Yelp and Wikipedia and IMDb, and those are great for the big subjects, but there's also like you know, a thousand small Wikipedias for tiny subjects like Pokemon or Lego, you know, and all of those are great answers, except when you're searching the the web, you know, you don't know they exist. And generally what happens is you find them via a link and you click the link and you have to figure out that site. But wouldn't it be great if the answer was just right there for you? Um, and that's what we've been building. So we have an open source platform where anyone can suggest an answer source and even code it and use it on our site or or their or embed it in their you know application, um, and so we want to connect, and that's where I believe it's headed. You know, searches to answers. In terms of the broader technology, I don't know. I need more. I need more focus <laughs> on that. Well, yeah, I mean, I realize it's a really sort of broad question uh, to ask, but, you know, it's interesting because I think that people immediately assume that, you know, like our our sort of default is, hey, you know, I'm going to Google something. But, you know, I've I've spent some time looking at DuckDuckGo and and realizing that, okay, you know what, because I think that we get this idea in our heads. And the reason I felt this was such a relevant conversation is we get this idea in our head that something has been done and nobody can do it better or differently and so we don't try at all. And I think that's relevant to any piece of art, any piece of content, any startup. And yet, you know, I think you've got the audacity to say, you know what? I'm going to challenge the biggest thing in the world at this point. Yeah. I mean, you could think about anything and say in 20 years from now, is that really going to be the same as it is now? Mm-hmm. And the answer is definitely not for anything technology related. Right. And so, I mean, the same can be said for Google, and that's kind of how I viewed it. And also, like, I think if you're a user of anything, even an appreciator of art, you can you can be a critic. You know, everyone's an art critic. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. That just means that you personally would like something a little different. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can go, you know, try to make it better along the way that you like it. Mm-hmm. Okay, this has been really, really fascinating. Um, I want to close with one last question, which I close all our interviews here at Unmistakable Creative with. Uh, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I mean, I have, and this is kind of a personal bias of kind of why I'm interested in things. I like the uniqueness of things. You know, I like unique impact, but I just like hearing new ideas and like things that are unmistakable to me or things that really jump out at me are things that like I see, wow, that's something that has a new element in it. Hmm. I love that. 
Well, Gabe, this has been really, really great. Uh, and I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and uh, share some of your insights with our listeners here at The Unmistakable Creative. And, and you know, for those of you guys listening, uh, you know, while Gabe has, has talked about this book in terms of the context of us and, uh, in, in, you know, startups, uh, I have to say this is probably one of the most useful books that I have read. We'll put a link uh, to it in the show notes. Highly, highly recommend that each and every one of you give it a read. I thank you very much. It's been okay. very fun. Yeah. And for those of you guys listening, we'll wrap the show with that. If you like what you heard, the greatest compliment you could give us is to share the show with a friend and let people know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Unmistakable Creative. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.